lights on, so... Good morning. Uh, Welcome to Church at Home. Uh, My name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, If you're new to us, we're delighted that you're joining us this morning and I hope that by the grace of God, our Bible talk will be a blessing and an encouragement to you, even as you continue in fellowship with your local church. Uh, If you're not attending a local church and want to know more about us, then can I invite you to visit our website, www.sbbc.org.za. And if you'd like one of the team to contact you, then please leave your details on the homepage. Well now as we begin, can I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark and to chapter 1. I will be reading from verse 9. The Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Well, just so far, and let's ask for the Lord's help as we look at his word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving to us the scriptures. We thank you that the scriptures are God-breathed and able to make us wise for salvation. And so we ask that you would speak words to us this morning that are timely, needful, helpful and wonderful. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, on Sunday mornings, uh, we're working our way through Mark's Gospel, and uh, there's nothing more basic than the Gospel of Mark. Uh, When we run Christianity Explored, we go back to Mark's Gospel. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, if we're going back to Mark's Gospel, it's a bit like going back to kindergarten. But if you were with us last week, Uh, you will have realised that we're actually going back to university because there's treasure in almost every word, in every verse. And I wonder if you agree with me that it's always possible to see more and more in God's word, even in those passages that are most familiar to us. Uh, I've been thinking about this during the lockdown. Uh, Of course, the, the lockdown is a difficult and anxious time Uh, We worry about the people who are suffering, Uh, we worry about the damage to the economy, and we worry about the future. But one of the things I'm discovering in this unsettling time is that I'm finding myself enjoying things that I haven't perhaps always fully appreciated before. Sounds like a trivial example. But uh, without the background traffic noise, the birds seem to be singing louder 
and more clearly than they were before. Now I'm sure that's not right. Uh, I'm sure they haven't turned up the volume for my benefit. It's just that in these new circumstances I'm noticing something that was there all along and I'm enjoying it. Now it seems to me that that's what happens with the Bible. Uh, Isn't it true that God sometimes uses difficult circumstances to help us see and appreciate more clearly the treasures in his word? The promises of God can seem more meaningful to us when life is more difficult. I've certainly found that in my own life and I hope that will be your experience as we take this journey together through Mark. Now last week we saw the preparation for Jesus in verses 1 to 8. We saw that God sent John to announce the coming of Jesus. And now today we come to verses 9 to 13, just five verses describing Jesus' baptism and temptation. Now what Mark gives us in five verses, the other Gospel writers give us in 15 or 16. So Mark is packing some pretty big things into a very brief section. And I do hope this morning at the end of our time together that you'll be saying to yourself, Wow, we have a great, committed, serious saviour who is wonderful. And especially if you're feeling a bit helpless and hopeless at the moment. Uh, I think it's very easy, isn't it, in a a time of enforced isolation uh, to slip into a feeling of hopelessness. uh, To feel that in the face of this coronavirus that we're helpless and that life itself is rather hopeless. Now if that's you, I do hope that you will be turning mentally to these verses in Mark's Gospel in the week ahead and saying to yourself, there is absolutely no one more committed, more qualified, more able, more dedicated, more compassionate, more powerful, more wonderful for me to lean on than Jesus Christ. And because of him, I can be at peace, even in this difficult situation. So three things this morning. Uh, First, in verse 9, Jesus and his repentance. Second, in verses 10 and 11, Jesus and his identity. And then thirdly, in verses 12 and 13, Jesus and his battle. So firstly then, Jesus and his repentance. And uh, I'd like you to come with me to verse 9. Mark writes, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. It says, doesn't it, at that time, Jesus came. Now John has just said back in chapter 1 and verse 7, that somebody very great is coming. And uh, then we read, Jesus of Nazareth came. So it's immediately clear that John wasn't a false prophet, because he said someone's coming, and now someone has indeed come. But what we need to ask ourselves this morning is whether Jesus of Nazareth is really as great as John said he is. I don't know if you know this, but Nazareth isn't mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament 
or in any other serious literature of that time. It's just not significant. Uh, I guess it's rather like uh, one of those places you could drive through in the Karoo without really noticing that you've passed through it. So when Mark says that Jesus came from Nazareth, we have to ask ourselves whether that is significant. We know that Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, David the king, but the Old Testament never talks about Nazareth. So I think the question in our passage this morning is, who on earth is Jesus of Nazareth? You see, all the people that John has been baptising until now have come from Jerusalem and Judea. They're people with a classy religious background. But no one was expecting the Messiah to come from Nazareth in Galilee. No one was prepared for that. But that's what happens. John says the Lord God is coming and then we're told Jesus of Nazareth comes. John says the one who's able to give you new life is coming. Jesus of Nazareth comes. John said the one whose shoes I don't even deserve to touch is coming. Jesus of Nazareth comes. So I think you have to ask yourself in the verses that follow, verses 9 to 13, whether these verses have anything in them to match the tremendous build-up that John has given. And I want obviously to suggest that as you read these verses, the answer is an overwhelming yes. Now why do I say that? Well, there may be nothing particularly special about Jesus of Nazareth going down into the water. But what happens after that? Well, the heavens tear open, <coughs> the Spirit of God comes down on him, a voice from heaven speaks, the Spirit thrusts him into the desert, Satan attacks him, and the angels attend him. Now surely that is more than enough evidence, isn't it, to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is a highly significant person. I don't think you could find more supernatural activity packed into five verses anywhere else in the Bible. Heaven split, <coughs> spirit descending, voice speaking, Satan tempting, angels attending. Now, I guess, perhaps like me, you might find yourself thinking, well, I find this rather hard to believe, and none of my friends are going to believe it. But can I say you have to ask yourself this key question? Is Jesus of Nazareth God come into the world? Because if Jesus of Nazareth really is God come into the world, well, then you would expect everything that follows in the rest of the New Testament which, of course, is what we've got. Now, the reason that people today struggle with this is because you and I are living in a culture that's dominated by a way of thinking called naturalism. And natural, naturalism pretty obviously says everything is natural. Uh, forget about the supernatural because that is for weird people. And that's because of a group called the Vienna Circle, uh, that got together in the 1930s. Uh, this was a group of philosophers and scientists and uh, in their meetings they all agreed that you could only talk about those things which were provable. 
And uh, whilst you may never have heard of the Vienna Circle, the fact is that their teaching, their writings, their lectures have all come down to us today and they are a powerful influence on the way, the way that people still think. So the members of the Vienna Circle used to say, if you can't show it to me, don't talk about it. So they wouldn't discuss the existence of God. Uh, it's unprovable. We're not talking about it. Uh, they wouldn't discuss the afterlife. It's not provable. We're not talking about it. Interestingly, they wouldn't even let atheists join the circle because atheists wanted to say there is no God and you can't prove it. So they refused to allow atheists to join the circle. Now the reason that I mentioned the Vienna Circle is because they were so blinkered that they couldn't deal with some of the big questions that people were asking in those days. So somebody raised the question in the group as to whether there might be craters on the other side of the moon. And uh, that brought the discussion to a standstill because they couldn't deal with it. No one could prove it. Someone else asked whether they could prescribe what kind of behaviour is acceptable and what isn't, both inside and outside the Vienna Circle. Of course, the real question was, does anyone have the authority to say how we should behave? And because they didn't believe in moral absolutes, they simply couldn't deal with that question. And shortly afterwards, the circle collapsed. Now, I mention this to you because when you come to these verses in Mark's Gospel and you find yourself reading about Jesus of Nazareth, well, absolutely no one can argue with that. He was a real person. He came from a real place. You can prove it. No one can say otherwise. But the real question is, is he also the Son of God? You see, Mark is introducing him as both Jesus of Nazareth and the Son of God. And unless you're reading Mark's Gospel with a certain openness that he could have been Jesus of Nazareth and the Son of God, well, you'll find yourself with blinkers that actually prevent you from engaging seriously with what Mark has written. So I say that in case, like me, uh, you find uh, you face these verses and you're thinking to yourself, you know, this is just miles and miles away from the people that I mix with during the week. But you see, the key question for them and for us this morning is, is Jesus of Nazareth the historical person? Is he also the Son of God? Because if he is, well, we'd better get ready for the supernatural. And then, of course, the other question in verse 9 is, why does Jesus get baptised? Uh, you might be thinking, well, I thought baptism, according to John, was a baptism of repentance, so it's a good thing for sinners to do, but Jesus wasn't a sinner. So why would he want to get baptised and repent? Now, it is perfectly true that John's baptism was for repentance. That's all he could do. He could wash you with water. Uh, he could challenge you to repent and put away all those things that would keep you from coming to Christ. And then, of course, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we find Christian baptism, which is a baptism for membership. 
uh, it's a welcome or an initiation into the church of Jesus Christ and then the spirit's baptism <coughs> the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the inward converting regenerating work of God but here is John the baptism uh, John the Baptist pushing a baptism of repentance and Jesus gets baptized and uh, we know from Matthew's gospel that even John finds this rather awkward and he says to Jesus I shouldn't be baptizing you uh, but Jesus says yes you should please do it but why does Jesus get baptized well the surprising answer is because Jesus is really repentant one scholar says he's the only truly repentant person who's ever lived in other words you see the people in, in John's day were saying yes I want to put away sin so they got baptised but then of course like the rest of us they would fall back into sin but here's Jesus and not only is he identifying with the people he's going to save but he's also saying I'm turning my back on sin I am not going to do it and then he sustains that repentance all the way through his life so when we read that Jesus got baptised we should find ourselves thanking God that there is one person in history who turned his back on evil and kept it up from start to finish now you see that's why those of us who trust in Christ are secure because you see we're being saved by someone who is actually in a position to save us problem is that our faith blows hot and cold mine does, so does yours uh, I have very good on days and then I have very sad off days and uh, all of us I guess have times of repentance and faith when we're very serious uh, we've been renewed, we feel refreshed we find ourselves keen and there's lots of joy because of course when you take the fight against sin seriously you often experience a deeper fellowship with God and that's a very wonderful thing but then you see if you're like me you soon become proud and you find yourself thinking well I'm being really repentant uh, what about everyone else? Now, I'm being really faithful what's the matter with everyone else? and then I fall back into my sins and I feel miserable but you see here is Jesus and he repents he turns his back on sin not of course on sins he's committed because he hasn't committed any but he turns his back on sin as a lifestyle and John baptises him and our security as Christians is bound up with the faithfulness of Jesus to his repentance so we repent and we put our faith in Jesus to get saved he repented and he was faithful to save and that you see is why we are so grateful for him Jesus and his repentance now the second little section is verses 10 and 11 and this is Jesus and his identity and this is where tremendous power and tremendous compassion come together 
when Winston Churchill was at the height of his powers in World War II, uh, his wife wrote him a letter to tell him, I think as only she could, that he was becoming rather overbearing. And uh, to quote her, not so kind as you used to be. And she said, with your terrific power, you must be kind. It was actually quite a long letter. And uh, she ended it by saying, please forgive me for saying this. You're loving, you're devoted, you're watchful, Clemmy. You see, power and compassion are very difficult to bring together. Uh, normally, if a person has great power, the kindness disappears. Or if you have massive kindness, very often there's not much power with it. But in Jesus, power and kindness come together perfectly. Now you'll see this in verses 10 and 11, where Jesus comes up from the water of baptism. And the heavens are opened, or literally split. By the way, the only other place uh, where Mark uses this word split in his book is in chapter 15, when Jesus dies and the curtain of the temple is split in two from top to bottom. He only uses that word in those two places, and we'll talk about that in our home groups this week. But here, Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens are torn open or split, and that's something that the prophet Isaiah prayed about in the Old Testament. Isaiah prayed, Lord, please would you rend the heavens and come down. And here, God does rend the heavens and he comes down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, the Spirit comes on Jesus and uh, immediately we're wondering if this is going to be any different to the way that the Spirit came on a number of different individuals in the Old Testament. And of course it is different because this person on whom the Holy Spirit descends is going to be Spirit-led from start to finish. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came on King David, but David went on a detour. Actually, he went on several detours. But here the Spirit comes onto Jesus, and he's going to be perfectly obedient from start to finish. And then in verse 12, the voice of God speaks from heaven, and we're so thankful that God did speak, because no one on earth was clever enough to work out who Jesus really is. God has to tell us. And he says to Jesus, You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now that sentence that God speaks is a loaded sentence. It contains three quotations from the Old Testament. Uh, the little phrase, you are my son, comes from Psalm 2. And uh, Psalm 2 is where God announces that his son is going to be the king of the world. And it was a psalm that absolutely intrigued God's people in the Old Testament because they were asking themselves, well, who on earth is this son who's going to sit on the throne and rule the nations? Could it be David? No, he fails. Could it be Solomon? No, he fails. 
Could it be one of Solomon's sons? No, they all fail. So who is going to sit on the throne and rule everything? And here at the baptism, the voice from heaven says, it's going to be Jesus of Nazareth. He's my son, he's the king. The little phrase, whom I love, comes from Genesis 22, which is where God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. God said to Abraham, take your son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. As I'm sure you know, God intervened and he rescued the boy, so Isaac didn't actually have to be sacrificed. But here at the baptism of Jesus, God announces that his son is literally the beloved. And we might say in brackets that he will be sacrificed and there will be no divine intervention, no last minute rescue. And I think that that word beloved is a very, very powerful word because God says as he, as he looks at his son, I love him. And that tells us, you see, that when Jesus dies on the cross, that is very, very costly to God the Father. Because his son isn't simply going to go through the crucifixion as an individual. He's going to bear all the sins of everyone God saves. And that, of course, means a billion times more suffering for the Son and the Father than anyone else ever experiences in this world. And then the, the third little phrase is where God says, with you I am well pleased. And that comes from Isaiah 42, which is one of the places in Isaiah's book where God speaks to someone called the servant. And God says to him, my servant will suffer. And in the chapters that follow, it becomes clear that he'll suffer as the righteous for the unrighteous. So God announces that the role that his beloved son will play is that he will also be the suffering servant. So put it all together. Uh, the voice from heaven is saying that Jesus of Nazareth is son and king and dearly loved and the suffering servant who's going to bring God's salvation into the world. Now friends, the reason this is so important is because God explains for our benefit who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And we wouldn't know otherwise. You see, if you visit the various art galleries around the world and look at any of the thousands of paintings of the crucifixion, will any of them tell you plainly why the crucifixion happened? No, they won't. You can't tell just by looking at a painting why Jesus is dying. You can see the sadness. You can see the grief. You can see the pain. But you can't see why. No painting can tell you that Jesus died for our sins. In order to discover that, I have to read my Bible because only God can give us the interpretation. So why is Jesus dying? 
the Bible says it's for our sins that's it so if you think of our lives rather like a movie uh, the Bible is like the subtitles in a movie God has provided the subtitles of course we can mentally switch them off as many people today are doing but in the Bible God has given us the interpretation that explains why the world is as it is today what God has done to put it right and how you and I can have a fresh start and hope even in all the sadness and uncertainty that we're dealing with at the moment it's all there it's all perfectly clear if only we'll take the trouble to read it now please will you also notice that what we have here in this wonderful announcement from heaven is the three persons of God or what Christians call the Trinity so the voice from heaven is obviously the voice of God the Father and uh, the Father sends God the Holy Spirit onto or I think perhaps a better translation is into God the Son and uh, the point is that the Trinity that was there right at the beginning of the Bible story working creation has now come to work salvation to put everything right and in Mark's book we're going to discover that it was God's son uh, the king who is greatly loved eternally loved who's going to be the suffering servant and the spirit is going to lead Jesus all the way through the cross to the crown and if you find yourself asking this question what on earth has this got to do with my life on Monday morning I would say it's got everything to do with your life on Monday morning because you see this means you can go into the new week as a believer in Jesus Christ saying well there is someone who governs my life and all the details of my life who's the king of the whole universe who's filled with love who's proved his love for me on the cross and so whatever it is that I might have to face this week it's all being supervised by someone who has complete power and complete compassion what more could I ask well thirdly and lastly in this passage there is Jesus and the battle verses 12 and 13 now very briefly you'll notice that the spirit comes on Jesus um, but he doesn't take Jesus to a hotel the spirit takes him into a battle the text is very brief uh, we, we don't get nearly as much information here as we do in Matthew uh, or Luke but it's very clear isn't it that Jesus is faithful and Jesus is victorious because he goes in and he comes out there's no failure and I suspect the point that Mark is making here is that just as Adam the first man went into a lovely garden and he had everything at his disposal but he failed so here Jesus is going into a desert with nothing at his disposal except the angels to minister to him and he triumphs 
Uh, the wild animals in verse 13 are an interesting detail because they're not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, not even in the other accounts of the temptation. But remember, will you, that Mark uh, was writing his book for Christians in Rome who were suffering intense persecution under Emperor Nero. Many of them were in danger of being thrown into the arena to be devoured by wild animals because of their faith. And I think it's quite likely that here in verse 13, Mark is saying to them that just as the angels attended Jesus during his ordeal with the devil and the wild animals, so the angels and all the power of heaven will minister to them as they face the prospect of martyrdom. Death will not be the end. Now, of course, that is a timely word for us, isn't it, as we contend with this formidable enemy that's sweeping people away in their thousands at the moment. Uh, coronavirus is every bit as menacing as those wild animals. But let's remember that for the Christian, death is not the end. And just as no enemy could destroy Jesus, no enemy can finally destroy the Christian. The other reason, of course, that Jesus goes into the desert is because Israel had gone into the desert for 40 years and been disobedient. And now, faithful Israel, reduced to just one man, is going into the desert for 40 days and he will be perfectly obedient. So friends, you see, what we thank God for, and this is so wonderful, is that we're not just saying thank you to God for the example of Jesus. We're thanking God for Jesus because he includes us in Jesus' success. He, he, as it were, draws us in to his victory. Jesus says, I've been faithful and I've died for you. I've risen again, so join in. Come to me and you'll have everything that I have. Everything that belongs to me will be yours. So here we have just five short verses. But they give us the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and they show us, don't they, somebody who is utterly committed and perfectly effective. Now you wouldn't think, would you, that, that greatness and compassion could come together in this way. Because if he is so great, why would he suffer? And if he suffers, could he really be that great? But you see in Jesus, the greatness and the suffering do come together. And my friend, if you're a Christian this morning, I hope you're going to keep turning these verses over in your mind this week. Saying to yourself, well, why did Jesus get baptised? Well, because he's utterly committed to his mission, to the work of salvation. <coughs> he's turning his back totally on sin. And he's giving himself completely to the work of salvation. And then remind yourself, why did he get baptised? Or, or, sorry, how great is Jesus? Ask yourself that question. And uh, the answer is that you can't actually measure the greatness of his power and you can't measure the greatness of his love. And uh, I certainly find, and I hope you do too, that the more that you meditate on these things, 
you'll find that they utterly transform your outlook on life. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, I simply want to say this to you this morning. Since somebody has come into the world who is so wonderful and who's given himself up completely to save you, won't you give yourself in trust to him and so discover that he embraces you, that he forgives you, and that he includes you in all the treasures of his life, his plans, and his victory. Why don't you do that this morning? Uh, a pastor once said to a man in his church who was repeatedly refusing to become a Christian, he said this, if I see you one day standing on the left side of Christ, uh, which means, of course, among the goats, uh, ready to be sent away, please won't you remember that I always urged you to the right side. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we read these verses, we, we glimpse something of the greatness of your Son, his identity, his mission, his involvement, his seriousness, his dedication, his compassion. And we pray that as you help us to see these things, that we would see them more clearly, that we would love him more dearly, and that we would follow him more nearly by way of response. For it is in his name we ask it. Amen.